ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Hey, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is the Wall Street Journal's Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today, we have a special encore episode for you about an issue that many people are thinking about right now, how to give back. Tens of millions of people are out of work, but some Americans have also reached out to help those in need, whether that's donating to a homeless shelter or food pantry or even making protective equipment for medical personnel. Last year, we spoke with a woman who knows a lot about giving back, philanthropist Mona Sinha. She's the board chair of Women Moving Millions, an organization of people who commit to donating at least $1 million to charities that support women and girls. We reached out to Mona recently. She said she's encouraging donors to support charities that are fighting the coronavirus. She herself is making donations to New York City restaurants that give free meals to healthcare workers in the epicenter of the pandemic. But she's also doubling down on her commitment to organizations that help women who are overcoming domestic abuse and human trafficking. And she's encouraging her fellow philanthropists to honor their pledges to their favorite charities so that they don't collapse. Mona says she's concerned that some of them won't have enough money to survive the crisis. We spoke with Mona last year about her work and how she got there. And we're reposting that episode today as an inspiration to lend a hand in any way we can. Before we dive into that, a quick note. Next week, we'll be speaking with small business owner Kate Luzio about how she's making changes to her business to keep it going. If you're a small business owner, we'd like to hear from you. We've got our secrets hotline open. Give us a call and tell us how you're doing and share your tips for keeping your business afloat. The number is 314 314- 200-5947. We've got that for you in the show notes as well. Okay, now Secrets listeners, Mona Sinha. So Mona, as a young woman in India, you said you were more like a guy or that you, you're just more like a guy in general. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I grew up as the third daughter in uh, a fairly conservative Bengali family. And uh, I think in in that situation, you know, being the third girl wasn't a really great place to be because of all the male preference that exists even today in countries like India. So as a third girl, I was always um, questioned about, oh, you don't have a brother. Oh, your parents don't have a son. And then there was a clicking of the tongues and the sort of sympathetic pauses that followed. And So I felt this great burden to be the boy. Uh, I felt like this was my parents' last chance, and I blew it without really having a choice, right? So um, I think for a large part of my growing up life, I tried to compensate and be the boy. So I played the sports, um, even though I was terrible at it. And uh, I had to do well in school because that's what the son would have done. And I had to sort of, you know, be the protector in the family, even though ironically I was the youngest child. So I did grow up um, feeling that burden and feeling that pressure of having not been a boy. What did your mom think of you being more like a boy? 
You know, I think she had mixed feelings. Um, I think even today, sometimes she says, I wish I'd had a boy, which is a little hurtful. But I'm in a place now where I can actually gently correct her and say, well, you know, the boy may have married someone that you didn't like. And then what would happen? (laughs) (laughs) Very true. So, um, you know, I think that she sometimes um, fell prey to the pressure around her without really meaning to. What do you say to women who have mothers who may have different expectations for them or kind of say hurtful things like that? I think you have to create your own support systems, and that's a lesson I learned pretty early on. Um, I think you have to learn how to be confident in who you are and, and how to support yourself in that mission of finding out who you really are. How do you find those support systems? Mentors, teachers, often, very often, teachers are, are our early mentors. And then as you get older in life, um, people who you meet who share the same values, people in the workplace, um, you know, there are people more like you everywhere than not. And it's, it's just a matter of being able to connect with people and keeping those relationships alive. You volunteered with Mother Teresa. What did you learn from her? Mother Teresa was a truly inspiring woman. Everybody who grew up in Calcutta knew her because she was so ever-present on the streets and in the work that she did with the most vulnerable populations of the city. Um, What I learned from her really was that not everybody can do great things, but everybody can do small things with a lot of love, and that can change lives around you. I've carried that message with me throughout my life. It's amazing. So your first job was on Wall Street and in investment banking, and you were often the only brown woman in the room. What did that feel like? To be honest, I didn't really think of it. You know, it's interesting because today people say, oh, you're a woman of color. Um, yes, I am. But I never knew that growing up in India because everybody looked like me. So I think only when move, moving to America made me realize that I was different. Um, I grew up fairly competitive, just trying to be a boy when I wasn't, and then uh, trying to succeed at school when I was all by myself. And so the competitive piece of being on Wall Street actually quite excited me. And I I loved my work. I loved being good at what I did. And uh, sometimes it took me by surprise when somebody pointed out that I was different. Um, But, but, you know, I sort of accepted that. and, And I, you know, I'm joyous in that other people sometimes tell me that I broke the stereotype so other people could be there after me. What do you say to women who do notice that they are the only woman in the room? Like, how do you, how do they not feel intimidated and keep confident? I think celebrate it. You know, you're there for a reason. You bring something to the party. Um, Often I'd be requested to work on a deal by a CEO because they found me interesting because perhaps I had stories that they hadn't heard from other people that they worked with. Um, so step into it and, and own it and celebrate it and be who you authentically are. You said you initially got some less high-profile assignments when you were starting out because you were a woman. What advice would you give to women who find themselves in that situation? Well, in my situation, you know, I graduated from a liberal arts college, and I had a degree in economics, but I was not a finance geek, you know, by any definition. Um, and I was competing with you know, the guys who graduated from Wharton, from other business schools who knew this stuff backwards and in their dreams. Um, in my situation, I really buckled down and said, I have to learn this stuff. If I'm going to be good at this job, I have to be just as good as everybody else. Um, and I think the determination and the willpower really saw me through this. 
I would spend hours at night working on models, understanding what the little pivots were that could change a DCF analysis or a valuation analysis, you know. Um, and to this day, I remember those days. I remember those little tricks, and I remember those, you know, things that I did uh, at 3 a.m., you know, trying to make sure that I, that I knew what I had to know really well. Uh, and I think that uh, I didn't shy away from taking on the assignments that I was initially given. Uh, but what I did do is perform on them to a degree that was vastly greater than what was expected. And that gets you noticed. I think when you do really good work, you do your homework, you know what you're talking about, and you're prepared. Um, and people turn to you to ask the questions when they're not sure you know, what the answers are. That's when you get noticed. You worked on a big merger, I'm sure many big mergers, and but at one point a senior banker tried to blame you for a mistake he made, and you were trying to decide what to do. Can you tell us about that? That was a pretty pivotal moment. I think there always come moments in our lives where we're ready to either quit or we're ready to say, okay, I'm not going to deal with this, and that was one of those moments. Uh, we were actually working on a very big merger there were changes happening at the last minute. There was a big meeting scheduled for the next day. And so the senior banker decided he was going to help me, which I thought was wonderful. But as he was playing around with the model, which I'm sure he hadn't done in a long time, he made a mistake. And in my naivete, I didn't check his work, thinking, of course, he's the senior banker. He knows what he's doing. And so when I was invited to sit in the meeting and they're talking about the numbers, my heart literally stopped because I realized that there was a mistake that he had made in his calculations, and they were basing the discussions off of that mistake. It was one of those moments where you're like, oh, my God, do oh my I gosh. just be quiet and let them go on? Yeah. But I raised my hand, and I pointed it out, and the conversation flowed, but I knew there'd be a repercussion. And sure enough, um, the head of the department called us in, even though the, the, the deal actually went through. And sort of, you know, in, in banking terms, reamed us out because of what had happened in front of a client. And the banker who was there was quiet and didn't say anything. And sort of the blame was placed on my shoulders as a person who traditionally ran the models. Um, so I sat with it for a bit and I left the office. Everybody was popping champagne and celebrating. And I went home and I came back the next day and I went into his office and I said, you know, you need to fess up because this is the start of my career, and this will take me down. And initially, he tried to underplay it. Oh, it's done. We're celebrating. It's such a big deal. It's wonderful. You did great work. Um, and I kind of dug my heels in, and I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to take that. I said, you need to own up to this. And I think he realized that I was pretty serious about it. Maybe he was a little afraid that I'd go you know, say something myself. Uh, but kudos to him, he did actually go and tell the senior banker that it was not my fault and an apology ensued and uh, all was good. But I felt proud for standing up for myself. How did you get the confidence to do that at what, like 23 or however you were? Yeah, I think it was just a sheer outrage. I think I take great pride in my work, in anything I do, um, and just to be blamed for something that um, I didn't do. And, and my question was, why should I take it? Why should I take somebody else's blame? Um, and I think part of that uh, chutzpah, which is a word I love, <laughs> uh, comes from sort of my own life journey and having to defend myself in many instances. How do you, what do you say to women who are trying to decide whether or not they should 
take the blame for someone's mistake or take that gamble, frankly, and speak up? I think you decide on what the consequences are. Uh, there are some things you let go, as we all do as women, uh, and there are some things you don't. And I think where it's something that's high profile and you know that people are going to be talking about it, I could sort of envision uh, looking into the future and saying, oh, remember that big deal? Oh, my God, it almost didn't happen because, you know, so-and-so made that mistake. And I wasn't going to let that happen because it wasn't my mistake to own. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Mona will talk about the importance of mentoring and how women can collaborate to create change. Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Both you and your husband worked long hours while you were raising your kids, and you said if you weren't always there for them, you didn't feel guilty. What do you explain by that? I think kids are resilient. I think as um, as women, whatever role we play in their lives, have to inspire them to be their best selves. Uh, for my kids, seeing that I've been involved in work outside the home, uh, not just on Wall Street, but... Um, outside in my philanthropy and in other volunteer work that I do <clears throat> has inspired them. It's it's interesting because my twin daughters are now applying to college. Uh, and I was reading one of um, my daughter's common app essays. And she, she talks very casually about listening to my mother's mentees around the kitchen table. Aww, and I loved reading that great. because obviously it does impact their lives in ways that we don't always see. That's really neat. Um, so some people say it's still very difficult to be a woman in business. What do you think and what do you hear from your mentees? I think women have made great strides. I think from uh, the 80s and 90s when I worked in the business world, um, changes have happened. Um, people have spoken up courageously. Things like the Me Too movement have you know, channeled the energy of women to be recognized and be appreciated for what they bring to the table, including their diversity, including their thought processes, including their very, you know, powerful skills of collaboration and negotiation. Um, but I think women get the greatest power from each other. I think to have a strong, supportive network of women, whether in the workforce or outside, is important for everyone. So you mentor countless women, as you mentioned. What's the biggest mistake you see women who are seeking mentoring make? Giving up. I think it's easy to give up. I think um, often women think, well, maybe I'm not good enough. I have that self-doubt, and so I should go for option B. And I always counsel them and say, no, absolutely not. Not unless you've really given option A the biggest kick you can possibly give it. What do you say? Like, you know, sometimes it just gets really tough. Like, how do you know that if it it's time to actually leave? You know when it's time to leave. I think all of us have that inner radar which tells us enough is enough. And um, I think what's important, though, is when you feel that feeling is to explore what other options are out there um, and not give up completely on a career. I mean, there's so many choices women have these days. Uh, there's flexibility in working from home. There's flexibility in timing. There's flexibility on just careers themselves. 
Um, so speak to as many people as you can. Get as much advice as you can. Seek out as much information as you can before making that choice. Do you see women giving up too early, too soon? No, I wouldn't say that. Um, I'd say women question themselves too much sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you just have to dive in and, and do it um, and celebrate the successes that you have. Uh, I think women don't celebrate their successes uh, as often as they should. And I think they do tend to think that they're not good enough. But I think everyone needs to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, I got this. You're the board chair of Women Moving Millions, a nonprofit that encourages women to donate large sums of money to charities that benefit women and girls. So which women's issue are funders most concerned about these days? It really runs the gamut. Um, I think our broad spectrum is and our vision is to have a gender equal world, which we know is really a vision mm -hmm. uh, and may not be realized in my lifetime. The issues that most of our uh, participants, and I really call them catalysts because they catalyze resources in a way that they have never been done before, range from politics, education, health, human rights, trafficking. It really runs the gamut, but in every area where women suffer the most, even an issue like climate change, which is really painted in broad strokes. When you look at it, the people who suffer the most from climate change are women. What's your advice for women who want to become philanthropists? Lean in. Uh, just do it. I think often uh, women are scared of the term. Um, like feminist, philanthropist is one of those labels that women mm. don't identify with very comfortably. Um, but I think in this case, it's wise to step into that discomfort and say, I can do this. You know, I am lucky enough to be in a position where I can do this and I can support other women and lift up women because the fundamental belief is that women are the agents of change. Uh, as women, we strongly want to leave behind a better world for our kids, our grandkids, and so forth. And I think if we entrust women to shape the direction of the world, then it's going to be in much better shape than it is in right now. So you mentioned sometimes women don't necessarily feel comfortable with their wealth and their success. So what's maybe one step we could take today to feel more comfortable and sort of own that success? I think part of it is a cultural thing. You know, growing up in India, I was always told, be very quiet. Breaking barriers and being wealthy or even inheriting wealth is a wonderful thing because you can share that and you can change other people's lives. Uh, wealth for wealth accumulation is not something most women do. And I think that's something that women need to recognize, that once you make a shift in somebody else's life because you've been able to share something that you own, that's life-changing. And I think anyone who's done that will never steer away from doing it again. Thanks again to Mona for sharing her story and insights. And a reminder that if you're a small business owner, give us a call and let us know how you're doing. We'd like to share your tips for how you're keeping your business afloat. Send us a text or call our hotline at 314-200-5947. We might use your comment on an upcoming show. If you'd like to hear more Secrets of Wealthy Women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. This episode was originally produced by Tanya Bustos. Today's version was produced by Trine Nori. 
Our executive producer is Kateri Yoakum. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.